Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is Monday Minute episode number 166. Normally on Monday Minute episodes, it is Steve and myself answering your listener questions. But today we're going to share a conversation that was previously recorded. Steve and myself sat down with Luke Carrick, who is a hunter that I've known about for a while, but I've only gotten to know personally and online within the last year or so. And he does some fascinating hunts including spending 30 plus days solo scouting for sheep in the summer. We talk about that and a whole lot more in this episode that I know you will enjoy. The reason we're sharing this episode and not doing a Q&A is that Steve and myself just got back from the Portland area for the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show. We've been there the last handful of days, and it's been so great to uh, connect with EXO customers and podcast listeners. So if you were there and stopped by, uh, thank you for swinging by. But we just got back last night, um, actually this morning, <laughs> super early in the morning, and wanted to still get a podcast out there for you today. So stay tuned for more, more Monday Minute episodes to come and a full episode to come this Wednesday. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with Luke Carrick. Luke, man, good to chat with you. Um, this is overdue. It's been fun just for, for listeners context. I've been aware of who you are. I feel like for a few years now, uh, and the school that you used to do and some things like that. But then randomly one day, a little over a year ago, I was going through orders for EXO that came through and saw that you bought a pack and I was like, dang, that name sounds familiar. And I looked <laughs> it up and I was like, Oh, I do know that guy. So what's, a to let listeners get to know you a little bit, what's a quick kind of like introduction and background of who you are, where you're coming from, and what you're up to in the hunting world? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So, yeah, hunted my entire life. You know, I was raised in the outdoors as a kid. And so always did the family hunts, you know, with all the big family camps and aunts and uncles and everybody. And I guess what got me into the backpacking thing is I just kind of got tired of seeing people. And uh, so at the age of 17 is when I started kind of venturing out in the backpack world. You know, so like everybody else probably started with the old uh, aluminum frame, canvas bag, cans of chili, can opener, and uh, kind of just going for it. And, uh, you know, now 17 years old then, now I'm going to be turning 47 here in April. So it's been a lot of ups and downs and, you know, uh, learning on my own all self-taught just uh, try and fail and learn more so yeah after the age of 17 just kept doing it and loved it and kind of never looked back actually my mom and dad still asked today they're like i don't know how you got in the backpack thing because you weren't raised like that you know like i said we were raised as family camps hunting off the roads so you know from there it's kind of just progressed from uh you know me doing my own thing hunting for myself and then uh, about 2009, I really started like the the process of helping others. You know, I was getting just as much satisfactory as seeing a, somebody else pull the trigger and their smiles on their face and stuff like that uh, as, you know, me hunting myself. So after you hunt, I guess, so many years and have so many kills, uh, you know, you lose it a little bit. It's still there, of course, but I just started getting more into the guiding part and enjoyed it a lot. Um, I had a background, a little bit of everything, you know, I've rifle hunted, I actually archery hunted for 16 years and harvested many animals, you know, all over the country and, um, got hired on with proof research in 2015, um, as a hunting pro staff. And so the bow had to go away if you're working for a rifle company, you know, the archery thing doesn't really help. And, uh, so then I just started, uh, you know, solid archery or rifle hunting and, uh, you know, venturing out in many different states and all over the country and traveling the world and seeing different areas. It was probably about seven, eight years ago. I was actually working with Proof on a kind of video photo project. And uh, one of my buddies was the video photo guy. And he asked if I ever wanted to get into photography. And I was like, yeah, I've always been interested in, you know, something I love, you know, would love, I think I'd love to do. And so he handed me the camera and I just captured some shots and he said, you know, I kind of had the eye for it. So after that, I started picking up cameras and then I kind of learned my 
my new niche in life. And so last seven, eight years going from the guiding to photography, doing both actually at the same time a lot, um, have a client with me and hunt, but also capture their whole entire hunt with photography. It's kind of best of both worlds, something to remember forever, plus to harvest. Um, but now it's almost like full-time, um, the hunting photography. It's taken a while to catch on. A lot of guy, guys like the video life and want to capture in video, but I think the photo thing is kind of cap, you know, kicking in now. And over the last five, six years, I've been traveling all over the world, capturing, pe- capturing people's hunts and, you know, enjoying to see different countries and, you know, different places and cultures and, uh, you know, just being able to travel and meet new people and come back and, you know, edit their photos and create, um, you know, custom albums for them and something they can have forever to remember. It, it's uh, definitely a new chapter in my life for sure. And it's, it's just growing bigger and bigger. So. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. It's been great. I think I've, first became aware of you for the courses that you put on that were, you know, focused specifically on like backcountry mountain and backpack hunting. Yep. And, you know, this was, you can correct me, like, I, I'm not sure what year this started. This was a while ago before I was aware of anything else like this. So tell us a little bit about that, like how it started, why you started. Sure. You know, it's kind of changed obviously since COVID because these were in person <laughs> yeah, courses. But like this was there's more stuff out there now. There's more seminars, there's more like camps, etc. But I don't know, man. You were the first one I was aware of that did anything like this. Yeah. So uh my good buddy Kalen Wojak with um uh modern day sniper. Um he's an ex-marine sniper and worked for Magpul and Gunworks. You know, we we're sitting in the backcountry one day. And uh, it was during hunt season, October. And he's like, you know, we just need to do something that nobody else has ever done. And so we kind of just put our heads together and decided that, uh, you know, with his military background and the sniper and uh, my background and kind of self-taught backcountry hunter, um, you know, he put all those, whatever, 20, 25 years of his experience, 20, 25 years of my experience, put it all together and, uh, create this class that maybe could help others get into the backcountry and uh, do backcountry hunts. So that's what we decided to do. So, you know, reached out, of course, he was working at Magpul at the time and uh, Magpul wanted to sponsor the whole thing and help out as much as they could. So they did. And so it just kind of progressed from there. We had uh, quite a few good connections in the hunting industry and uh, the, those people really pushed and helped um, get things going. And, we started in uh, 2015, and it was just uh, gangbusters for about six years. Um, you know, teaching two classes per year, eight students, and people come on come, coming from all over the world, traveling from Maine and Canada and Mexico, and uh, anywhere from you know uh, the first time hunter didn't even have to put on a scope to people like uh, Karen Methow with American Hunter. Uh, magazine who's hunted all over the world their entire life and uh, Colton Maganelli uh, editor for Western Hunter um, guys that and gals that really know hunting and know what to do but they came with an open mind and just wanted to learn so we put uh, a five-day class together it's two days on a private shooting range learning everything that Kalen has to offer Um, people haven't even shot sometimes past 300 yards. And usually by noon or, you know, late afternoon on the first day of the class, people are hitting gongs out to six, seven, 800 yards and just smiling like crazy. So you spend a couple of days learning all about the rifle stuff, safety and techniques, uh, shooting like 200 rounds. And then we actually load up the backpacks, um, two nights, three days and, you know, pretty much go put you through everything you'd have to go through, say on a backcountry mule deer hunt or backcountry sheep hunt or whatever animal you're hunting, just a fully loaded pack with rifles and all your gear from an actual hunt. Um, and I try to create a different course every couple of years. So no course was the same. And I would kind of read the students in the first couple of days to see what they're capable of. And uh, I have different routes that are different miles. So sometimes we don't only end up doing 15 miles in three days, but 
I felt like the, the guys or the girls were strong. Then we might do 25 to 30 miles in those three days. Um, every physical challenge, mental challenge you can think of that you don't backcountry hunt, I would think. And uh, we'd have that throughout those three days for sure. You know, competitions, fire building, um, engaging targets anywhere from, you know, 200 yards to 600 yards. Um, uh, extreme hill climbs, descents. Uh, crick crossings, pumping water, you, you name it. Anything you can think of that has to deal with the backcountry hunt, I would put on them. And we get lots of, you know, lots of blisters, lots of complaining, uh, lots of learning, lots of sweat, tears, a little bit of everything, you know, and you have fathers, daughters, best friends. Uh, it's just a great time. We always have a good time, great people. And, uh, you know, like you said, COVID hit and it kind of fell apart there for a little bit. Um, and then we had the ammunition problems, so that kind of fell apart. So we're hoping through the next year or two, we'll get her back going again. We have lots of requests for it. So that's definitely uh, something that's pretty popular and we have lots of fun doing it. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. I'm sure that there's guys listening to this who are, would be chomping at the bit if you guys open up again too. I'm curious, like we hear so much from people who listen to the podcast who are newer backcountry hunters like you said you know some of the course attendees maybe they've been hunting a ton all over the world but they've never done like a backpack hunt and we'll often hear from those guys and a lot of questions and i'm I'm on the perspective of that guy listening to everything you just said like what is what are some of the biggest takeaways that people had from that experience like what's the stuff you can't learn on a podcast that you can't get from a youtube video that you can't read about but when you go on a course like this or when you go on a backpack hunt, like stuff gets real. What are the biggest takeaways, you know, that you saw in students? Oh, for sure. So yeah, after every, after those five days, we, we, we stop at a restaurant, pizza place, whatever, and have, you know, drinks and beers and do a round table and let everybody talk about their, their uh, situation and their experience and their takeaways and, pros and cons. And so it really helps us to kind of get feedback right away, right after the class. I mean, the boots had just barely got off the dirt and we're already talking about it. And so pretty much every time, you know, I think the biggest thing is learning their physical and mental capabilities. You can't do that in a gym. You can't do that at home. You can't do that anywhere else, but throwing on that 50, 60, 70 pound pack with a rifle and going through all those scenarios to see what you're really capable of. And big, strong guys that do it all the time sometimes struggle worse than, you know, a five foot two, 120 pound gal. Um, it's mental, it's physical, and you just have to get there and do it and learn what you're uh, not capable of. Uh, we'll put people in situations where they didn't know they were scared of heights. And then all of a sudden they won't go down this little cliff ravine or, you know, uh, they haven't wore boots, the right boots for when you have a 50, 60 pound pack on. So you have a backpacker in the class that is literally hikes hundred miles a year, 200, 300, 400 miles a year, but only wearing tennis shoes with a 25 pound pack. So then you put that 40, 50 pound pack on them with a backpacking boot and their feet get destroyed. They've just never been in that situation. Um, being, you know, how to eat and hydrate. Um, we've had students, you know, throwing up and turning white. And, uh, you, you know, they didn't know how to hydrate. They don't know how to, to eat properly during the, those three days. And so that's part of the learning process. Um, we have students come away, so, you know, it's the biggest eye-opener in their life. And they're in their mid-40s, and they're going to change their whole physical outlook in life. So it really opened their eyes to what they needed to do. Um, so definitely the physical and mental challenge, If you, it, it, even if you hit the gym as hard as you possibly can, which a lot of us do every day, it's nothing like the backcountry hunting situation. Yeah. I mean, we talk, we try to talk about that a lot. You just got to get out there and do it, get out there and learn, get out there and figure out what you need to know, what you need to fix, what gear works for you. There's just no replacement for that. Right. Exactly. So one thing I, I didn't even quite understand the extent of this Luke, but we were talking pretty recently at sheep show. And as you mentioned, you still guide. And I knew that 
you know, you took some, you took some long trips. So again, kind of for context is you and I connected through XO, you bought a pack. Um, I stayed in touch with you a little bit knowing you got out in the field a ton that you've used packs a ton that you do these courses and hunts and everything else. And this was prior to us launching K4. And I was like, man, it'd be great if you could put a bunch of time in the field with K4. So I kind of reached out about that and you, you did that. But one of those trips was you going up to BC in July. And I didn't quite realize the extent of this, but you essentially, essentially spend upwards of 30 days, pretty much solo before sheep season, scouting sheep, finding sheep, staying on sheep. Like that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, sir. <laughs> it's uh definitely not for everybody, but man, that's, that's my home away from home. That's, I love that solo. Don't have to worry about anybody else but myself. You can put yourself through any situation because you're just worrying about yourself only. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's like I just said, it's my home away from home. I love, absolutely love that stuff. Is the solo thing like, do you think certain people are wired for that or it's something that kind of like yeah. grows over time? No, it's, it's wired. It's, it's, uh, I say we're all genetic, gen- genetically wired for something. Um, everybody is. And, you know, so being solo like that is not for everybody. Uh, pushing yourself to those absolute limits is not for everybody. But, you know, when I, when I'm in those situations, that's when I'm the happiest. That's when my body feels the best. That's when I just, you know, I, I, it's hard to explain. You go beat the piss out of yourself for 30 some days, not eating correctly, vertical miles, crazy weather, just the whole living with the grizz, the whole scenario. And, you know, I come back like a happier man, uh, uh, physically and mentally. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not for everybody. I mean, people fall, fall apart in that solo, uh, isolation with that, all those situations you have to put yourself in for sure. I don't think I've ever pushed myself past four or five days, but I know it's definitely like, I certainly like to do one or two solo hunts a year, but I also really appreciate company. It's not, I don't know if I can go do 30. (laughs) That'd be be rough. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's a blast, especially in that country. I mean, that, that is the last forgiven God's country that that country up there is unbelievable. So logistically, I think you said you're going in with like seven to 10 days of food, but you'll get airdrops and stuff like that to resupply to keep you out there. Yeah. Yeah. Usually like, uh, I'll try to push 10 to 12 days in the packs. Uh, last year in your pack, I had 11, 11 days and, uh, you know, it's, uh, usually four to 5,000 vertical foot climb to get out of the timber into the rocks where, you know, I try to live up stay up above timberline as much as I can to stay away from the grizz, even though the grizz go up there a lot to chase those giant rock chucks. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think this year it took me, you know, six and a half hours vertical uh, with that big heavy pack um, to get out of timberline up to where I camp. And no, that's not, that's not, you know, the, the first thing we did either. I mean, it's a, it's a, 25 hour drive and then an hour and a half cub flight to get to the lodge. Then it's a two hour drive with the horse trailer. Then it's a seven to eight hour horse ride to get there. Then then it's my six, seven hour backpack from there. Um, so, you know, it's not just a little walk in the park. It's, it's a, a big ordeal. Um, so yeah, once you know, you're loaded up that heavy and you get up there and I'll last as long as I can. And of course we run in reaches, stay in contact and then, um, yeah, the owner will do a food drop of whatever, how long I'm there or where I'm at. If I moved, um, drop another bag of food for another 10, whatever days or five days, whatever it takes to keep me up there. Um, you know, different years are, you know, more challenging than others. Uh, like uh, this last year was crazy because the sheep kept moving on me. So I never stayed in one place more than like eight eight days at the most and I'd be moving again. And so it was a lot more challenging, um, physically 
trying to, you know, stay with a stone sheep in British Columbia. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to keep, keep an eye on. <laughs> Why do you think they're moving? And that you said that's not common. No, I mean, I've watched them before and they seem to stay on the same range, at least, you know, a range that's, uh, you know, say six, eight miles long and 10 miles wide or something. There's no reason to really leave that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if it, it was, it was, uh, you know, just venture in a new country. Cause you could tell they, they came in this range. I only found a few tracks coming in and a few tracks going out. So it's like they came in to check out the area or something and then went right back to where they came from. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So it was like, you know, they just, they'd been there before, uh, but yeah, they came in and came right back out. So it was just kind of crazy. Yeah. I've hunted dolls in Alaska a couple of times, but never, you know, you're just out hiking and never been out out there long enough to see if they're really moving. They seem to be pretty like just kind of hanging out in a basin. It surprised me that they're traveling that much. Yeah. Yep. Being out there that long, I'm just curious, like, you know, it's easy to talk about gear is the thing, but it's unique to talk with someone like you who's truly out there for that long. And obviously you're not, you're not just bailing if the weather sucks or the storm comes or whatever. So I'm curious, like, what are, what are some must haves? What are some, you'll never go withouts? What are some lessons you've learned along the way? Like just any any of that stuff related to spending that much time in the field i'd love to glean from sure so i mean probably i mean there's lots of lots of things must haves i mean good quality tent i mean i used the hillberg and i have for years and uh, i have been in many storms in that thing uh in 19 i was up there for 36 days and uh big storms uh, heavy winds and torrential rains and i think i was trapped in that tent for over 36 hours and uh i'm at the peak so i'm at 7200 feet you know nothing around me i get everything there is um so amazing tent you know good sleeping pad um i've learned over the years not to cheap out on a pad so you know he's a nice two to three inch thick sucker that's wide and it holds your shoulders up and uh, makes you comfy because you could spend a lot of time. I mean, rest and re- recouping is the biggest thing. If you don't rest, uh, you're not going to feel too good. So a good sleeping pad, good sleeping bag. Um, up there, I've always been using a zero. Um, you know, yeah, you might have a night that's 40, 45, but I've had nights that are 10 or 15 in July as well. And two or three, four inches of snow, um, you know, 50, 60 mile an hour winds. So I take a little heavier bag than normal for July, August, but uh, it's it's definitely worth it. Do you run synthetic or down? Uh, down, yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, but probably the, I would say probably the biggest thing is probably layering systems. Literally the weather changes so fast from hot to cold, the wind, hail, rain, um, so just that whatever gear you love, if, I mean, it's UA, it's Under Armour for me, it might be Q for you or Sitka for somebody else, but whatever their full layer system is, you know, uh, I use it and use all of it. I mean, there are many times I've been up on that mountain up there where I have every single layer on. So I have like seven layers on top and maybe four or five on the bottom. And that last layer being that hard shell rain gear that, you know, it was absolutely just a, a lifesaver. Um, I've had seven, eight hour horse rides, you know, solid rain gear like that and perfectly dry. But if you didn't have it, just be miserable. I've sat in a couple storms up there where I was too far from my tent and it hit too fast. And so I just threw all my layers on my down, everything with the hard shell rain gear over top and just sat in a storm for six or seven hours straight. And just let it pound me. Um, stand up, the storm breaks, your bone dry. I mean, so that good layer system with that amazing rain gear, it's, it's definitely key. I think it's interesting you just highlighted sitting there in it and getting pounded by it because it's like, on one hand, you have nowhere to go, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but what's key at that is, like you said, you stay dry and you wouldn't be dry if you tried to get up and like cover miles and gain vert in it to get to your shelter. You would have actually soaked yourself from the inside by doing that 
Yeah, I saw the storm coming, but I was just too far away. And I was like, I'm just going to put everything I have on, hunker down. And only it's July. So it's a summer storm. Maybe it's only going to last 30 to 40 minutes. Well, no, it was like six hours later. I was getting to the point where I was starting to shiver. So I was like, please break, please break. You know, I had my head down, bundled up in a ball, and the, the rain was coming out so hard as coming off the bill of my hat, just straight stream onto my lap. And finally, you know, it broke and, uh, sun popped out and wind blew it, blew everything perfectly dry. But I mean, yeah, it was, it was a long one to sit through. It's <laughs> crazy. So you're saying hard shell, you just meaning just what, what is, what is the brand of ring you're using? Under Armour. They're Under Gore-Tex. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so not just your, your ultralight backpack, um, rain gear, you know, the really yeah. thin stuff, but the actual, the, the good QU stuff, the good sickest stuff, but my, my, mine's the Under Armour Gore-Tex. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, it's never let me down. It's phenomenal. What is your average pack weight going in? Uh, you know, on that, those trips there, they're extremely heavy. Um, I'd say low end 75, you know, high end 85, 90. Um, okay. Yeah. Like this year, the 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 Wrangler and the, the two Wranglers that helped me put the pack on. It, I mean, they they couldn't even believe I was wearing it. So with the rifle, everything on it, they were like, "You're insane." <laughs> <laughs> You're carrying a rifle up there before sheep season for the scouting. Is that just for bears? Just grizz protection, yeah. Okay. Bear spray rifle. Yep. Gotcha. So you do this? You're out there call it 30 days you're keeping tabs on sheep seeing what's in that country staying with sheep if needed and then hunters just get you know it sounds like rode in on horseback you meet up with them after already been out there for weeks and then you continue on the hunt with them yes yep exactly wow. so yeah the guy the guide the wranglers uh whoever the whole pack team of horses and camp and the whole nine yards um, comes in and kind of takes over and feeds me some decent food. And I might get a cold beer and pass out. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't had any good food and you know anything for quite a while. That horse food tastes damn good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you change? Like, obviously, we've talked about this with backpacking. Like, sometimes you just get so sick of something, and that's on a you know five to ten day trip. You're out there thirty days, so like. Are are you the guy who can deal with eating the same thing a lot? Do you have to have a lot a lot of variety? Or I would imagine that many days out there, you just begin to look at food as just calories in a way. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, over the years, uh, it, it's all a, a live and learn game. So you might uh, live and learn you love Snickers, but then if you did it for ten days, you hate Snickers. So uh, after doing it so much. I pretty much eat the same thing on all my trips because it, it, it satisfies my body, my cravings. Um, and so I, I kind of stick to the same routine and it usually does really well. And you crave certain things out there that you don't crave at home. You know, I don't eat sugar at all, hardly at home, candy wise. But man, in the back country, I crave sugar and it's got to be just something, even if it's small. You know, I don't care if it's just uh, fruit snacks or Kit Kat or whatever. It, uh, it's something definitely I have to add to my arsenal <laughs> during the backpack season for sure. It's candy. <laughs> so what are some of the specifics beyond candy? Um, so yeah, my basic, say my basic meal plan. Um, you know, I love in the morning, the, I'll take uh, the granola and blueberries mountain house. And it doesn't have to be mountain house, it can be any of them, but just a basic granola breakfast. And I usually take, uh, one or two oatmeals and add in with that. So, I mean, right there, you're pushing almost a thousand calories just for breakfast. Um, so that really gets the day start off good. So that way I know if I get in a situation, maybe I'm going on a big hike or, you know, you guys know how it is. If you're hunting, sometimes you just don't eat. Uh, you mm -hmm. got to force yourself because you're so much in the, in, in the, in the go mode that you just, you know, have to stop yourself and say, I need some calories. So, you know, if you start off a big breakfast like that, it usually holds you for quite a while. Um, but then snacks, you know, I try to put a snack in every two hours. So even if it's just a basic uh, uh, granola bar, 
or a, a basic, some kind of nutrition bar. So, you know, any granola bar you like or a nutrition bar, you know, toward the cliff bar, a Luna bar, um, something like that. So I always pack granola bars, nutrition bars. Um, I always have lots of instant coffee. I mean, there's sometimes I'll have three or four copies a day. Um, yeah, yeah. So lots <laughs> of coffees. Um, the noon tablets, they're always in my pack for rehydration. I've done lots of different rehydration and just the noon works for me. It's simple. They all taste good. So I'm just kind of stuck with them. Um, uh, I'll do like to do in the colder seasons, you know, some top ramen, um, for lunch. A lot of times I'll do pepperoni sticks, jerky. Um, sometimes I'll do tuna packs and crackers. Uh, I always have just a basic small bag of trail mix, you know, per day. You know, just whatever, a 200 calorie small pack of trail mix. Um, I said like candy, for, uh, fruit snacks or any type of uh, anything that won't melt. So I try not to pack too much chocolate, um, more of the, you know, gummy type candies. Um, that always, you know, satisfies me pretty darn good. And then, of course, for dinner, I always do another mountain house as well. Um I'm sure I'm forgetting something in there, but you know, that's kind of the basic. Yeah. And it's it, pretty similar it, to what Mark and I run. Yeah. 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 And it just kind of keeps you going and I'm usually pretty good with it. Man, I I could pick your brain there, but uh I wanted to I wanted you to touch on the photography a little bit and and what that like you you hinted at it, like the meaning of that. And what I'm curious is Relating it to people listening to this, they're they're probably not hiring a professional photographer like yourself to document their hunt. And I think, you know, there's a fair amount of guys who take photos to post for others, but I'm more interested in like guys capturing their hunts, if nothing else, for their own memories to share with family, friends, kids. Like I don't care about Instagram or any of that stuff. Like maybe just speak to I mean, you have, cause you have a passion for it. So like, what value do you think is there in doing these awesome things and actually encouraging people to document it in some way, whatever that looks like. Right. Um, but actually have that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy for me because I guess I've always taken some kind of pictures, you know, they might not have been good, but I always took something. And so I, I look back and I have a, you know, old photo album of since when I was a kid to look back on. And maybe when I was 12 years old, when I killed my first buck to, you know, last year when I killed a bear, yeah, I got pictures of all of them. And so I've always done that, but there's a lot of people that don't, um, you know, you know, it's kind of crazy. Like uh, last year heading on to Tiburon in March down in Mexico. So I was going on, I got hired for hunting photography is going on the Island. Well, on, you know, the boats coming off the Island, bringing a hunter off. And, uh, you know, these are for some guys, they're once in a lifetime. I mean, Tiburon is sheep hunting Mecca of the world. I mean, the largest desert sheep you'll ever hunt. And so not to get a picture is kind of just, you know, crazy to me. So anyways, the hunter is coming off of a giant 182 Ram and, uh, he saw my big camera and Tiburon is amazing photography place. And I was like, Hey, did you get some great photos of that amazing Ram in your adventure? And he's like, Oh, I got a couple cell phone pics. And I just, you know, shake my head. Like, yeah, I, you know, how many times have you heard that? You hear, I hear it all the time, every single year. And so he's like, Hey, I see your big camera. Can you just take a couple minutes and just snap some shots? I said, yeah, don't even you know, pretend I'm not even here. You guys got to pack up and do your thing and I'll do what I do. And so you know, I probably took like 60, 70 photos in 10, 15 minutes. And, uh, he got home from his hunt and I sent him a gallery of probably like 35 of my favorite photos that I captured in 10 minutes. And the guy was absolutely blown away. You know, what you can capture just within 10 minutes. Can you imagine a guy like me being with you for 10 days? Um, and just having those photos that you're going to literally share with your family and friends for the rest of your life. And it, it could be, you know, a, a basic maybe elk hunt that you do that took you 20 years to draw. Well, that's the only time you're probably going to ever draw the elk tag. 
just like this sheep tag. It's very expensive and it might be the only time you ever go to that place your entire life. And to not, you know, take a quality photo to have forever is, it's kind of crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, what I do, I, I don't charge a lot. It's not that expensive for what guys are paying for hunts. Um, give some examples. Like, so I probably last six years done six years, done quite a few international trips and the guys that I go with, I usually get rehired again because they appreciate it so much. So these guys, when I get home and I go through their photos and I send them a giant gallery and then I make custom albums that they can have in their trophy rooms or just their house, wherever, just to share. I just heard it, you know, just a couple of days ago from the stone sheep guy. Um, he's like, Luke, when people come over, what first thing we do is, you know, crack a bottle of wine, have a nice dinner. And we sit there and we look at these books that you create and we'll sit there for two to three hours and go through these books going step by step, you know, telling the story because your story, your, your photos tell the story. And so literally people are just blown away about, you know, that people aren't doing this more and, you know, everybody should have one of these and this is how you should capture your adventures. Um, so, you know, I, I knew it was important kind of when I started doing it. Um, but I think the more I do it, the word gets out more and it's, it's just, Hey, it's, would, would you not have a photographer at your wedding? I mean, it's what's, what, what's some of the biggest things in your life? Um, of course you're going to have a, a photographer at a wedding. So you're going on these big, amazing hunts. You might only get to do once in your life. And so it's like the perfect opportunity to, you know, have it captured if it's video, if it's photography or, or whatever it is. I mean, it's just, to me, it's really, really important. And I, I think the more I do it, the more that uh, I see other people enjoy it as much as I do and appreciate it. You know, I hear it a lot. So super cool. This is uh, incredibly broad, but you piece together your personal hunting decades teaching all these courses we talked about, spending all this time in the field, now more recently going on all these hunts, whether you're a guide, whether you're a photographer, like you just, you've observed a lot externally and then obviously participated in a lot firsthand. Like whether it's a specific story or just something you kind of tend to see over and over again, like what are some of the just like, basic things that people overlook get wrong make wrong decisions in the heat of the moment whatever like what question makes you think of or what comes to mind when i ask you that question um i'd probably say all the years everything i've done i think the thing that i noticed the most is guys not comfortable not confident in their rifle abilities, whatever gun they have, uh, they just don't spend enough time with it. May, they might train to get their bodies ready for this hunt, you know, physically and everything, but it just doesn't seem like guys put enough time behind the gun. It's different with a bow. It seems like guys put a lot of time in an archery, you know, shooting thousands and thousands of arrows. And so it shouldn't be any different with your rifle. Um, you should train just as hard. Uh, know that equipment, be confident in it, whatever the yardage you dial, you know, your range is 650 and you dial whatever and you lay down and you kill that thing. Um, that's how confident you should be. Um, but it seems like guys really struggle in the heat of the moment with equipment. You know, that's, uh, I mean, that's part of it. it's hunting. You're, you're jacked up, you're excited, journal is going. So things are going to go wrong. But the more you practice and the more you are confident and comfortable with your equipment, those things go away. Um, so I think, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing I ever see is just guys need to spend more time um, behind the trigger. And a lot of times what I'll do, and Kalen will help me with is say I do, we do have a guy that's going to come out for a hunt or whatever. And so me and Kalen will spend a day with him. Bring your rifle or, you know, I work for proof. I got four proof rifles. You can use one of my rifles. Um, and so the guys will come to the range and spend eight hours with us, learning techniques, shooting gongs to 1500 yards, 
shooting the proof rifle, um, getting confident, laying prone, learning the dial, you know, whatever it takes. Um, then, you know, when you're in the field with the guy and you tell him to dial to 1.2, he knows what you're talking about. Um, so, I mean, stuff like that, I think really helps if guys spend more time, you know, just prepping with their equipment. I think that's probably the best thing that I ever do <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, a lot of factors that come into that. Like there's the misconception of, you know, the, the ability to pick up a rifle and in a controlled environment, like at the range go, I haven't shot this rifle since last year, but I can pull it out and hit, you know, steel at 400. Right. Which is tends to be different than I haven't shot a bow in a year. I'm going to have to pick this thing up. I'm going to have to get back in the groove. I'm going to have to get more comfortable shooting. Like there's this idea that with a rifle, everything's easier. And in instances (laughs) it can be, but sometimes it's not. And I think guys neglect it for part of that reason. And then I think we've just like been, I don't want to say duped by marketing, but especially these days with how good rifles are, their capabilities are really good. And we hear all of that of like how accurate it is, how consistent it is, whatever. And we can go make some good things happen again in a controlled environment or at the range (laughs) or whatever, but you can take the most capable rifle in the world and completely botch it right in the heat of the moment when you're not familiar with it, you're not in a good position, et cetera. For sure. I want uh, again, stereotyping. I wonder how many guys like have these big expensive hunts and drop cash on a nice fancy rifle, but don't actually do much with it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy how much, how many guys don't do anything. Being all over the world, man, what's, uh, what still gets you excited? Like what's, what's a place that you still always are excited to go to, or do you have a certain species you always want to go hunt, whether that's guiding, hunting for yourself, being behind the camera, like what just keeps you super passionate these days? Well, I love it all. Love seeing it all, seeing new places. Um, but you know, my passion definitely is big bull elk. Um, I'd love to guide or photographer watch, or I don't care if it's September, October, November, whatever. Um, uh, I love hunting elk, um, very passionate about it. Scout, you know, really hard when we have tags, um, love the rut hunts been calling, you know, for whatever, since I was 20 years old, uh, learned from a really, really, really good buddies, older gentleman that's killed hundreds and hundreds of elk. And, uh, so, you know, when you learn from a guy like that, it really, really helps. And so, you know, I love being the caller on those elk hunts and uh, just a, you know, amazing animal. Um, but probably, I mean, my number one, like right now, travel place is where I'm leaving Monday morning is Tiburon Island. It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, high, high, you know, quality and quantity of desert sheep, just a beautiful place, amazing people. I always tell people that haven't traveled internationally, you have to travel international just to see the culture and the people because it's such a different, so different than the U.S. U.S. just loves to work hard and spend money. You know, everybody's grumpy. Um, International, work less, make less money, and always smile and always happy. Um, I love photography and international. Um, People just smile and always want their photo taken and um, you know, you got on Tiburon and it's a, it's a big ordeal. You got, you know, in a camp, there's 15 to 20 guys working for just a, a one or two hunters and, uh, always asking to have their picture taken and always smiling. It, it's just so much fun. The people, like I said, the people are amazing. The Island is amazing. The hunting is absolutely unreal. And it's just a special place. Not everybody gets to go there. You know, it's a high dollar tag. There's very limited tags. And so for me to be able to go down, this is, this will be my sixth desert sheep hunt. And I still got like three more coming up that I've been hired for. Um, so to go down to this place and have the opportunity to go that many times is just unreal. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful place. So def, definitely Tiburon is number one right now. 
That's cool, man. I don't even know much about it other than it's just its reputation for sheep. Are there other species there? Is there mule deer hunting? Is there anything else that guys kind of pair with the experience or is it purely desert sheep? No. Yeah. There's giant mule deer. Um, uh, the first time I was there, I think I picked up like 32 mule deer, mule deer sheds. I think the biggest shed was like 212. Um, so there's giant muleys, um, got lots of coyotes, but that's about it. They don't have, they don't have coos. Coos didn't make it on the island. They tried javelina. Javelina didn't make it. Um, so it's basically desert sheep, which they estimate on that island, like 1200 desert sheep on there. Um, but yeah, some giant, giant muleys for sure. So is that, I'm not even aware of the geography. Is that pretty similar close to like, you know, Sonoran mule deer then like the Sonora area? Yeah. 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 It's, it's just off the mainland of Sonora. It's like a 45, 45 minute boat ride. Yep. Got it. Mainland of Sonora. Yep. Okay. That makes sense then with the mule deer. It's cool to hear after being all over the world, doing things like Sonora, like you still love elk, you know, and are super passionate about that encounter. I like it. (laughs) There's so much information on calling elk. And you mentioned learning from this guy. What is, if you were to sum up like your calling strategy or what you've learned and how you sum it up, because there's so many different ideas out there. Like, how do you describe it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you hear so many different things. And I, I mean, I think it's just another thing. You got to get out there and do it and live and learn. And you, you'll you fail many times on elk, guaranteed. Um but just over the years, how many times you do it, how many hunts you go on, you know, a lot of guys might only go on one a year, one every three years, one every five years. So I may feel pretty lucky that I get to go on anywhere, sometimes five to seven to 10 a year. Um, and so you learn a lot more quicker. Um, so, I mean, for me, uh, I do a lot of cow calling, um, super aggressive I'm not scared to move in on them fast, uh, get in close, um, run at them, push their buttons. Um, but I really like the, the, the early pre-rut cow calling. Um, the boys are still together, bachelored up, and they're really searching for those cows. And so you can get into those groups of you know big bulls and separate them out and pick them out and Sometimes there'll be five, six bulls together. And so you get to see, you know, five bulls that are 350 plus or whatever. Um, but they're really hot on those cow calls. And uh, so for me, you know, I, I really hit the cow call hard and be super aggressive and, you know, use the calling from daylight till noon. Uh, I, you know, most of the time I try to backpack with the elk. So there's no set camp. You just follow the elk and live where they live and bed when they bed and uh, stay with them. You know, hunt till day, you know, from daylight till noon, lay with them wherever they bed, took you to bed. Uh, Wait till about two, give them a two hour break, hit them again at two and uh, just keep chasing them. And wherever they take you five, six, seven miles up a canyon, whatever, then you just sleep with them again. Um, that's, I mean, my best strategy I've used for a long time, and it seems to really work. Um, been super successful. Um, so, you know, like I said, everybody has their own ideas and their own ways. And I'm not a bugler guy. I use it to locate. Um, but I can tell you right now, I've never killed one elk with a bugle. Um, so, yeah, everybody's got their own strategies, though, for sure. What do you, when you, so you're backpacking, you're staying with the elk and staying in close. How, how close do you camp? Like, well, that's a question we get a lot is, am I going to screw it up? Can I be in the field? How close can I camp to elk? Should I be above them, below them, across the ridge, et cetera? What have you learned or experienced about that? Well, I'll like tell you a few examples, like from this year, um, like the, I think it was the first day I got in on an ice bowl and it was getting late in the afternoon, uh, early morning. Um, and so I kind of had a feeling he was going to his bed. So we just kind of stayed with him and he would talk now and then, but he kept going away to a certain spot. You're hitting that, you know, 10 30, 11 o'clock range. 
And so we literally just followed him all the way down the canyon and I'm getting to be about 12, 1230. And I told the guys like, Hey, we're just going to hang out right below him. I can guarantee he's bedded with it less than a hundred yards from us. And so, you know, we waited and, uh, you know, rehydrate and eat snacks for a couple hours. And usually the whole time while I'm resting, I will keep calling to let that bull know that there is elk still there. So if you're interested, come see me. If not, well, I'll hit you at two o'clock when you get up. And so when we're laying there eating snacks, whatever, every now and then just do a cow call or a soft little bugle or something. And, uh, so like this scenario, you know, we stopped at 1230, whatever. And, uh, I told the guys like, Hey, well, it's two o'clock. I'm gonna start hitting a little harder. So by two 30, you know, that bull couldn't take it anymore. He got up out of his bed and walked down to 15 yards. Um, so just situations like that where maybe, maybe when you're hunting them in that, that morning time, you know, you can get fairly close as long as the wind's good. It's all about the wind. Uh, I don't care. You could wear orange and pink and purple, whatever color you want. It doesn't matter. It's all about the wind. And, uh, same it's like in the evenings, um, same camping with them. We camped, I was camped, you know, within a, a ear distance, you could bugle off the ridge and their bull bedded blow us say two to 300 yards. Um, but the wind was good coming out of the West. The bull was to our West. Um, so we were camped within two or 300 yards of them all night long. And then the next morning, right at daylight, he just pops right off again. You're, you're right there, ready to go. So, I mean, as long as long as their wind's okay, I think you can get fairly close, but you just got to be very careful with that wind for sure. I like it. Well, uh, we could talk for hours Never. more. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to get to Tiburon, man. We'll have to do... We'll have to do another yeah. podcast, man. There's there's so much with your experience that we could talk about, but thanks for hopping on this one. I know we bounced over the place. I knew that was going to happen, but a lot of good sure. stuff in here. Yeah, yeah. Like they said, you get in that the hunting chat, and they said guys like us could literally talk for days. So <laughs> <laughs> had fun just sitting back and listening. That was good. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. <laughs> yeah, I uh, appreciate it, guys. Very nice to meet you guys at Sheep Show. Appreciate all the help.